I was asked by another triathlon media platform to make a list of the three pieces of training equipment I couldn't live without. And they were one, my super shoe runners, two, my form goggles, and three, my indoor bike trainer and training platform. And the person making the list said, sent me a message and said, mate, did you just put the form goggles in there because they sponsor the podcast? Because if that's the case, I'd like you to pick something that you actually want in there, not just something that you're paid to put in there. And it sort of it made me angry initially, but then it made me think, actually, maybe everyone thinks that, but I hope no one thinks that I tell everyone to go and buy form goggles because of that. So I thought, well, fuck it. I'm going to come on and tell this story because it's an opportunity for me to remind everyone that you will literally never hear an ad for a product on this podcast that is just for money. In fact, I have said no to literally every brand that's messaged me to come and sponsor the show because honestly, I've thought the products have all sucked. But I personally reached out to Form because I use their smart goggles. I love them and I want everyone to try them for themselves and realize the run-of-the-mill goggles they've been wearing before them just aren't as good. In fact, they're not even close. And I love that I can provide everyone a discount code for them because I know every single triathlete out there who makes the switch to them will love them and will never go back. That discount code is HTT15. It gets you 15% off your goggles and a free premium one-year membership. The link and code is in the description or you can just Google form goggles. So if you've been considering making the change, go and do it and you'll, you'll just see for yourself how much funner, how much more motivating and how much more specific your swim training gets. Particularly if you're someone like me who swims by themselves a bit or doesn't love swim training naturally. You'll also find that your swim just improves a lot more than you thought it would because of them. And I know like I've definitely seen that myself and instead of dreading my next 70.3 swim, I'm actually really looking forward to it. So I just wanted to remind everyone, I only tell people to go and get form goggles because I personally bought them, I personally love them and I'll never go back to anything else. Kat Matthews, welcome to How They Train. Kat, you're one of the stories of 2022 in long course triathlon, runner up at the Ironman World Championships in St. George, a couple of really classy 70.3 wins, and then caught absolutely everyone's attention at the sub seven, sub eight project. Everything just like seemed to be going your way to me. You're a huge favorite for Kona and everyone was talking about that, especially after your performance at St. George. But Ultimately, that just didn't end up happening with you getting hit by a car in what to me seems like a pretty horrific accident from the outside looking in. So I, I want to sort of break all of this down bit by bit, talk training, talk how you achieve the level of performances you do, but also delve a, di- a bit deeper today into like the hardships you, you face, which is not something we really talk about much in this podcast. Um, so I guess let's let's go back and could you take us into your lead up to the Ironman World Championships at St. George and, and maybe talk to me about how you were training for that race? Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Jack. I, obviously, I actually listen to this podcast quite a lot um, and I've I've learned a lot already from your interview. So thank you. And to your um, you know, guests on the show who've been so honest. So I'm like, I'm a bit nervous about how, how honest you're going to make me <laughs> talk in this interview. Um, yeah, so St. George last year in May, my um, training had gone excellently. Um, like, and I was open about that on social media over the winter. 
um, into January, February, you know, I, I was, I honestly, I've said it before, but I thought my power meter was broken because my training was going so well. I was like, just convinced that it wouldn't actually show itself in a race. It would just be, oh, the power meter's reading 20 watts high. Um, but going into Lanza 70.3, I made myself so nervous in race week that I was then sick, like in bed for a couple of days before the race. Excellent. Um, and then uh, raced really well and then caught COVID. So three weeks before St. George and Amor Champs, I had two weeks, 14 days of positive COVID tests, uh, which I didn't really want to talk about at the time because it felt like an excuse. And there was a lot of people being worried about their health before that race. And I was then testing three weeks before, like negative. So I was like, okay, well, I'm safe and I'm healthy to fly to America. I'm going to give it my best shot. And I don't necessarily want people to think or see an excuse in my performance. Like I didn't want to give myself that excuse. So training was excellent up until that point. And then the build up into the St. George World Champs, I somehow managed to turn around my training confidence within the couple of weeks of being in America in St. George in preparation for the the race um, to a point where I, I don't know, just created confidence out of what felt like nowhere at that point. (laughs) Um, And then destroyed myself to come second. So it was, it wasn't as um, smooth perhaps as it looked. Um, And within that, obviously, um, while also in the sort of, stressful period of dealing with COVID uh, also signed up our, you know, we, we started looking at the sub eight project as, as an option. So it was all very, it was all very stressful. <laughs> um, and a lot of that sort of uh, analogy of the, you know, smooth sailing on the surface and then the duck's legs like paddling like crazy underneath. Um, I knew that the sub eight project would be really tough regardless of how St. George went four weeks after an Ironman world champs, like you have to bury yourself. So I knew that that would be really hard. Um, but I was like really happy with how it went in the end. So yeah, a great start to the year. <laughs> There's like with your story and with your year, with some people, I, I just want to talk about their training and like specifics with that. But with you, yeah. that you definitely have like there's elements like you say you talk about your power just feeling like being 20 watts higher than what you're used to and I go like I instinctively go okay well how did she make that happen and then you talk about the the sub eight thing and I go oh no now I want to hear how that came about there's just so many different things in your story from one year or really from six months that I've been looking forward to hearing about for ages so let's start with the training how were yep. you training that that had you in that shape where you know you dominated everyone at Ironman Lanzarote? That was a stacked field. You beat Annie Haug by like five minutes in second, um, and then you know did what you did, and, and only one of Daniela Reeves' best performances she's ever had could stop you at St George. So, how did you get to that point? What what specifically were you doing? What what did your block look like um, in the lead in? Who's your coach? What were you guys doing together? All of the details. Cool. Um, so my coach is um, Bjorn Giesman, a German triathlon coach um, and multifaceted sort of uh, business owner as well, obviously. Um, also known to be coaching Patrick Langer and previously coached Boris Stein and Daniela Blumenhall. So a big, credible background. I've been with him for a couple of years since the start of 2021. 
Um, and then in terms of just breaking down that progression on my bike, it's actually a really steady progression. So I started cycling in, as in physically did my first, you know, one hour on a cycle, on a cycle training ride in maybe 2015, 2016. And so I've just been improving for the last, I don't know, whatever that is, six, seven years, just every year, 5% better or something like that. So I actually don't think it's like anything remarkable. It's just getting into the sport and my training years are really quite young, um, especially in cycling, which is obviously, as we know, as most people know, cycling is a sort of, you know, a learned skill. It's a volume thing. You've got to, you've got to spend the hours to really reap the rewards. Um, and then specifics. I think what's been really interesting about working with Bjorn um, as my coach before uh, was a bike shop owner in England, amazing guy. Um, and I trained very much like an, as a standard age group training, I would say. Um, but with Bjorn, I'm doing very much a, a pro, I would see it as a sort of pro triathlon quite normal now but I don't know what's normal um of maybe three or four days of um pretty intensive as in swim bike run swim bike gym swim bike run swim bike maybe run again so my running volume is low but all of those days all have intervals in um either threshold or tempo and they they tend to be on the very for me this is different to other athletes that my coach coaches I tend to really push that limit so my threshold reps for example I might do two threshold sessions in the bike in a three or four day block and that might be like three times three minutes at threshold or it might be three times six minutes at threshold but it's normally over threshold <laughs> because my heart rate, I'm going more to heart rate range. So I'm trying to get my heart rate into my threshold heart rate range for those six minutes, for example. And then following a set of those threshold reps, I then 10 minutes later, 20 minutes later, whatever it is, after some easy riding, I would then do a, a set of tempo reps. So again, maybe three or four times, six to eight minutes. Um, and again, those tend to be over race pace, um, tempo sort of heart rate. Um, I'm quite obsessive heart rate. Um, and that's something that I've, I think I've developed from my, I guess, sporting background, physiology, physio, like general sort of human biology. And I now encompass a lot in all my training and my racing. So that's the sort of bike element. So yeah, three or four days of a lot of bike volume and then a complete day off so no nothing not not even like you know easy swim I mean I might sometimes do a bit of foam rolling or something for half an hour but generally it's like day off like today com uh, nothing is <laughs> excellent and so how much volume would there be in like that little three to four day block um volume I don't focus on and neither it appears does my coach but to like give it as in that's not ever a target um but maybe i'm just doing a little quick maths now it might be like four to six hours a day three or four days in a row yeah okay so how long would you do that for or is that just what you do all the time in your training or does it sort of have periodization about it that would be very much on a training camp 
So where the weather's nice outside and getting three to four hours of cycling in a day is like sort of quote marks easy um, because that's, yeah, it's easy. It's easy quote marks <laughs> to get the overload of training in and the recovery. I don't think I, I couldn't tolerate, I don't, I don't think I could. And I, I don't through the training program do that at home where it would be on the turbo. Like when I then come back from my camp, so say I'll do that for two to three weeks, just consistent three to four days, day off, three to four days, day off. Like that would be planned into a three week camp. Less than three week camp is like, you don't necessarily get as many of those little mini blocks in it that makes it worthwhile for the travel in theory is a theory. And then maybe I've got two weeks at home or something like that, or 10 days at home where I'm just doing maybe two sessions a day, not three um the occasional third session sure maybe but it would be very much an adaptation sort of period and again just like there's so much going on at home my coach is really keen on the idea of like life stress coming into overall stress so if there's something else like a media day that's not a day off that has an element of stress so let's let's account for that and then have an easy day the next day or something like that I think that's very relatable for age group triathletes as well or anyone who doesn't do that as a professional probably knows that even more than a person who does it as a professional and can relate to it so like interesting point you bring up totally and I think on that I think it's worth like so I was working um, a normal normal job in a hospital you know 7 30 in the morning at my desk straight onto the hospital wards half an hour for lunch finish work at half four five o'clock and I was training maybe 10 hours a week on a good week and that was too much I kept breaking and I think it's really interesting for me to then I then went from doing that to reducing my working hours by 10 hours and to enable me to train for those 10 hours and it sort of immediately I stopped getting niggles and within three months I got my pro license it was like a really interesting case study on reflection when you say it broke you or it would break you, like if you were working that much and, and trying to train t- 10 hours a week, was it just the physical? Was it just like, hey, I would get stress f- fractures or soft tissue injuries? Or was it also, was there a mental component where um, the stress of all that being tired, run down, you were like, were you grumpy and hard to be around and those kind of things as well? <laughs> obviously never grumpy, obviously. No <laughs> woman ever is grumpy. Um, <laughs> sexist comment, sorry. Um <laughs> I'm allowed to. Yeah, yeah, you're uh, allowed to. So, again, injuries I've only ever had uh, are tend to be like tendon overload. Um, and, yeah, so that sort of, when I say break me, it was more like just, oh, I was getting a sore shoulder and I'd, I couldn't swim for a couple of days or I picked up a calf strain, so I took four weeks off running or, um, you know, a bit of a knee, like inflammation in the knee. So I had to stop cycling, like all of these little things. I actually never got to a point when I was working full time where triathlon wasn't my release. Like I always, it was always the fun thing. I never took it seriously enough for it to affect my mental health. Um, and I, yeah, in hindsight, that was a good thing. And so if we, we go back to the building to St. George, um, like, because that was such a little, little weird time, the COVID stuff and, and St. George like coming out of nowhere and but also having Kona later in the year. 
when you were training really well for that, was St. George your goal? Like, was like, all I want to do is win St. George? Or was it still like not even your main goal for the year? So you weren't actually the fittest you were going to be throughout the year for that race? No, um, St. George World Champs was was my my main goal for... So I did St. George 70.3 Worlds on a bit of a whim, as in like a last minute, sure, I'll go. And I came fourth in October 21. And from there, I then took six weeks off, like as in six weeks of non-structured training, I still was active. Um, and during that winter, I the only thing I wanted to achieve was to win St. George. And I, I think I worked a little bit on my mentality mentality in sort of November of that winter because I was in the race in the 70.3 worlds and I was thinking to myself oh Emma Pallant's right behind me cool well if she overtakes me there's still fifth that's great well done like I had no drive to be on the podium or to be better I and it was like the mental element I couldn't physically but mentally I remember thinking that's really weak. Like you need to be better than that. Now you need to start wanting to win races. And I think I went through a sort of, I don't know, like power word phase of like, I can be a world champion. I can, I, I, you know, and that was where I guess this word can that came out with the sub eight thing came to the forefront. Like it was, I, I need to start really trying to win races. Whereas I think I'd spent the last couple of years just being a bit sort of starstruck and happy to participate. Uh, well, I guess that shows itself a little bit at the start of 2022 as well, doesn't it? When, you know, you absolutely dominate a deep field at Lanzarote, including Anne Haag, who, you know, say what you want, is probably uh, the most consistent triathlete uh, on the planet. And then at St. George, you were riding the fire all day with, you know, the best in the sport, um, Daniela and again. So do you think that, did that like little patch you had where you were made a shift in mindset to go, no, I can be a world champion. I can be the best in the world. Did it show itself that quickly? Um, yeah, I think so. I really went into St. George, the world champs, uh, I'm Anne, in May, believing that I was good enough to win. And I, I look back at that now and I'm like, how on earth did I get myself in that mental state? Like I remember doing one of Talbot Cox's like Lionel's videos and yeah, I, I come across like I'm crazy confident and that in my mind, that's not me. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I don't, I would prefer and always just to be steady state, humble me, not I'm going to win this race. Yeah. Hoorah. Um, so yeah, I think it was a, a sort of, yeah, a, sh a shift, I guess, but it was backed up by my Lanza performance. It was that good. Like I knew the data, I saw the power numbers, like, my running was better than ever. I, it it was rational as well as being psychologically strong or confident. I remember this so clearly because in the lead up to St. George, I did a, a podcast um, for how they train with Craig Alexander. And we just basically broke down what we thought was going to happen in the race. And I said, I, I mentioned that like that potentially you were a podium threat. And Crowey's like, yeah, she like she could she could win this race on her day. And I asked him, I said, Crowey, how can you have confidence in Cat to win? She she doesn't really win big races, you know. She's there, 
and she she like looks like she can win it but how can you have confidence that Kat can win it? And he goes, and he just had so much confidence in you. And then I remember like watching some of your interviews and you seem so confident. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, what am I missing here? Like, what's the change? And so hearing you talk about this is absolutely fascinating to me because I had had these questions in my own head about you leading into St. George. And then as I was watching the race unfold and, you know, you are a bit of a Terminator out there, you know, you, you, Daniela seemed like she was on another level to everyone else, but you just seemed so robotic. Like if she wasn't there, you were always going to win. Like Annie Hag was never going to catch you or break you. You just just seemed robotic. So there's like been a few things with you saying that it actually wasn't that easy. And to me, you you know, you did look like a a robot out there and, and you sort of did prove to me. And by that, I probably mean you proved to everyone that you are someone who is going to win big races and can win big races. Thanks. Firstly, love Crowey. Love that he had that confidence in me. Um, and he might, it might have looked like I was robotic, but uh, I was in a whole world of hurt. And it was probably just robotic because I had nothing else except for the momentum of moving forwards to give. <laughs> it was horrendous. Um, I still, I still, minus the crash, I honestly spent the summer looking back on St. George feeling like I had a little bit of PTSD from how how hard I had to work in that race. And Anne was catching me. She must have taken, I think she took five minutes out of me or something in the first 10K. She, There was, without doubt, it's a bit like sub eight, Nicola. There was no doubt in my mind that they were going to catch. And it was third place I was fighting for. It was it was to be on the podium, not not to win, which is goes against what I just said a minute yeah. ago. But, you know, in the moment, you've got to adapt and find those sort of, I guess there's mental holes, like where you can cling on to, to give yourself strength. So this is something that doesn't really get talked about enough, but anyone who does the sport or any endurance sport for that matter, whether it be you at the highest uh, level of it, or whether it be someone who does their first, you know, sprint distance triathlon is when you're racing, when things are hard, we all have this like inner monologue that we, we go through where we're talking to ourselves and every single human alive does it and every single person does it differently um the way we talk to ourselves the way we like tell ourselves to keep going when things are tough the the way we stop ourselves from stopping that kind of thing so to hear you talk about that how it was you know (laughs) such a hard day that you still have a bit of ptsd about it and and the internal dialogue that you you sort of go through to get to that line and and get yourself there without breaking and, and still finishing second what are you saying to yourself? What are the conversations you're having with yourself? How do you how do you push yourself that deep? Um, I think it changes. So there's not one strategy that I prepare and then would put into place during a race. I think it's yeah, it's very much just depend depends on the situation. St. George was actually one race where I was in so much like turmoil that uh, I had to be positive to myself. Normally, if from my sort of recollection, I actually have to be negative to myself to be like, come on, like do better, be better. As in like, you're better than this, work harder, sort of like a negative pushing myself. Like, what does this mean to you? Like, what will it feel like? You've done this in training. Um, my knee hurts. Yeah, cool. So what? Their knee probably hurts. There's just like, loads of constant little battles um and i think i think having a strategy doesn't always work but i really think that it's the skills that you develop in training 
those really tough times when you just continue, they're the times that you can just sit back on in a way in a race and be like, well, I nearly quit that session, but I didn't. That session was horrendous and I felt sick, but I wasn't sick sort of thing. So it's like, okay, well now I feel sick, but I'm not going to be sick because I wasn't in that training session four and a half weeks ago, whatever it was. So I think I really utilize the, the mental aspect of training in my mental sort of racing as well. Do you think that's always a conscious thing? So do you think that when you're having that tough time in the race that you're, you're like going, oh, but remember that training session? Or is sometimes it, is sometimes it just like a bit of a subconscious thing where because you've done all these training sessions, you haven't quit on yourself, you haven't pressed snooze on that alarm, you know, you've gotten up at the time you've got to get up at, you've, you've like ticked off the session you had to tick off, that like it, it sort of subconsciously builds this strength that you don't even necessarily consciously think about in a, in a race. It's just there because of those things. Yeah, I think it's it's very it's not very often at all that I have to be like right, let's be positive and think back to a time. You know, like it's it's normally just in an instinctive, like you say, subconscious sort of constant mental driving of like you learn you've learned that lesson, so implement it. And then talk to me about about like um, St George and and coming second there and and how that felt, and then how did the sub eight project come about after that? um pretty unbelievable firstly crossing the line uh any athlete who achieves or exceeds a goal um to me I wanted to win the race but coming second felt like winning in that scenario because of the race how it had played out so it felt like winning um so any athlete who's achieved a goal will know that feeling of <laughs> euphoria um and to do it around friends and family was, yeah, unbelievable. Um, and I still hold on to that emotion. And luckily I've got, you know, the sort of classic finish line photos, like they give me so much reward every day, even when I'm having good days and bad days, crossing that line in St. George still holds us really, like probably this most special moment for me. The doping control afterwards where I couldn't pee for about three hours, less <laughs> special. Anyway, <laughs> lesson learned. I actually overhydrated in that race um, and then messed myself up. But anyway, um, coming into St. Sub 8 after that, like I said before, I knew it was going to be really hard, but we had a couple of days just relaxing by the pool in Vegas. Um Daniela actually invited us to a very cool, like small gathering in the MGM Grand in Vegas before we flew, like unbelievably generous, really great sort of pool party. Um, had some other friends, like, you know, loads of Brits around as well, which was just great. And then um, what I wasn't expecting was, you know, second place still attracts a lot of media attention. And then I think the next week was filled with podcasts, <laughs> um, which was fun, photo shoots, magazine things like again just like out of my world uh of what was normal or expected um and then i also had to fit in a bmc training camp which is held every year in mallorca so i had discussed with bob and ben the managers that i'd take a short trip to mallorca it's like they let me go slightly shorter because of the the time gap between st george and the sub eight project so i spent five days in mallorca and then two days later then flew out to Germany for the sub eight. Um, so it was all, it was 
a very jammed pack few weeks and somehow I managed to do a little bit of training going back to the specifics it was very much at home um I was swimming as much as I could get access to the pool which I had uh at this point I was in in Brist living in Bristol in the UK so we, I had access all day long to a 25 meter open open air pool so flexibility was really easy I just do my own sessions um and then uh cycling turbo trainer I think I might have gone on the road once in that couple of weeks that I was in the UK um and running I didn't run for about two and a half weeks I think after St George or something like because I had some I, I mentioned I messed up my hydration I had some really bad blisters from the race because of overhydrating, I think um and so I couldn't run <laughs> couldn't run because of the blisters uh, but my weird little run confidence head was like totally fine with that um, and it was enough that I managed to do two run sessions in Mallorca before going to Germany, I think, um, and got a little bit of outdoor riding in, in Mallorca as well with, with the rest of the BMC team. So like Chelsea, Christian Hogenhal, Patrick Nielsen, um, which was also really fun and just a bit of a mental break. That was the biggest thing for me at that point. I was so stressed and I guess overwhelmed with having to go through what felt like another Ironman again, having had such a stressful St. George, I, I was at a low point the week before sub eight, um, but a couple of sessions and turn my sort of head around, I guess, to just get out there and, and give it my best shot. That's like that little five minutes of you just talking, there was just a wild amount to break down in there. I kept like Sorry. wanting to interrupt <laughs> and be like, wow. So let's start like, I can't just go past. Daniela Reef had a party at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas to celebrate St. George. She's pretty cool. <laughs> what? Oh, that, she's a triathlete. Yeah, we all are, right? We still are humans. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've never heard of a triathlete having an after party at the MGM. That's like what a boxer would do. Well, it was there was like 15 people. It, I wouldn't say that it had any like attitude of what I imagine a boxer would do. It was, <laughs> it was very classy. That's just crazy though, to me, you like, you don't hear about that kind of stuff. Take like what happened? She, how did you get the invite? Like what, what like set me up? Were there any other triathletes there? What, what, what happened? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so Danielle has been a bit of a, like, I guess, cringe. Like, so of a, uh, there's a lot of idols in the sport, but she's been a bit of an idol since I started um doing iron man like she's been winning right for the last 10 years it feels like um and yeah crossing the line having she was really complimentary about my racing during the race as in she said something along the lines of it was really cool to be like we were on the bike and we were really racing each other like i think she meant that she hadn't really had that cycling competition I was only there for about an hour and a half um, properly in a race before. And for me, that was like the biggest compliment, obviously. And I remember feeling that at the time, like I took the lead for, for about five minutes. Um, like I took the lead and, you know, was driving the pace. It, it was really fun. Anyway, um, I think, yeah, challenging her when she was at her best, I think was really nice for her. And I think we then ended up going for drinks I don't know St George is a, a little bit of a tricky place to have a good party um after the awards there was basically nothing and so my husband is a bit is, I would like to say a socialite I think that's fair to him he sort of 
gathered everyone and got an, an after party going at the only bar in town. Um, and again, just bonded from that. Uh, and it just happened that social media connects you and, oh, you're going to Vegas. We're going to Vegas. We're, by the way, we're here before we fly out. Do you guys want to come? And we were obviously like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> obviously <laughs> we'd love to. Um, so yeah, it was very cool. Yeah. And then, so how did the sub eight project actually come about? How are you and Nicholas Spirig, the two that were picked for that? Take us like into the behind the scenes dealings there. Hmm. Um, obviously there's contracts about this stuff. Don't, don't worry um, about them today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So Lucy uh, was injured at some point in that beginning of that year. Um, and so at some point, the sub eight team then were questioning whether they needed to get a replacement. And at the time I was working with Mana, who is an agency under Chris McCormack and um, same with Joe Skipper. So we both became the sort of replacements uh, last minute. It's obviously slightly easier for them to organize. Um, it was definitely a bit of a, they, I think they risked me. Like I was, I hadn't done St. George at that point. I'd had a great performance at Lanzarote Shore, but like you said, I hadn't been winning races. Like why me? So I, I sort of had to put my hand up and Mark also was like massively confident in me that we could do it. Um, I think I took credit from the fact that my marathon would be good no matter what. So a, a steady TT bike, I knew I could run a 2.45 as an when I say I knew, obviously there's always variables, but in my head, that would be relatively simple to do. Whereas, for example, other people might not be able to run a sub three. So that was 15 minutes that I had off, you know, assuming that the bike is driven by a lot of other people. There was quite a lot of tactics involved anyway. Put my hand up um, and said, yeah, I can do it. And Mark said, I can do all the logistics because again, people do not realize how much there was to do in the background, like an unbelievable amount of work of logistics of 10 other people in the team as well and sorting out kit which had its own issues um and sorting out like bikes and turbo like everything um so yeah I, don't, I can't remember where we were going with that but it was a it was a big leap forwards to say we can do this and they took a bet on us I guess it, they, they sort of gave us a bit of an automaton like if you can get at least six of your team together in the next 48 hours like confirmed you like you're in <laughs> and so we already sort of knew we had those like we had those relationships um semi-formed because I'd done some domestic time trialing in the last couple of years and we had a few friends already who I knew would be excellent pacers um triathletes like Ruth Astle and Indy Lee um so actually finding a team with such an like incredible event was being really attractive was actually quite easy for us well easy for mark to to work around i was just head down st george focus really so you were like training for st george at the same time you knew that you were going to go to the sub eight project where did you sit in the camp like as the person who was actually going to do it where did you sit in the the sub eight project matters and i care about it or the sub eight project is a bit silly and i don't care about it because everyone sort of had one of those two opinions, right? They either like, like, oh, who cares? Yeah. It's like fake or, oh, this is going to be really cool. Where, where were you? So it's honest for me to say that when it first came out, I thought, oh, cool. 
it was a bit meh, a bit like the the Lionel Yan um, race. I was a bit like, I want to see a race, not two people fighting it off. Um, sim- so sort of, I was, yeah, I wasn't really bought into the idea. But as um, we started reading a bit more and they slowly released more information, my dad, who's super keen on the sport and statistics, his two passions, um, and us as kids, obviously, uh, he he was really invested in it as an idea. And we had already been chatting months before, sort of, I don't know, I think it might be in September, about how actually I think I could do it, like quite easily as well. Um, and then we obviously parked it because it's like, cool, Lucy and Nicola going against each other. St. George, it's all about St. George, all about St. George. And then obviously when it became an option to put your my hand forward, I was quite obsessed um and being part of it I didn't realize how cool it would be it it is still I know the performance at St George I've said is like my my sort of emotional golden point of my short young career um but the coolness of St Sub 8 is just I'll I'll never forget that working with a team of people who are trying to get you like physically working on the race course in that way and dynamics with team tactics with team cars I was totally obsessed with it in race week everyone was so hyped up everyone was in the dining room you know three meals a day working together training on the course the boys the girls everyone it was so cool so my my attitude to it completely changed um I think that's I'm gonna have a biased view Okay, I just don't. You said before that you were a bit worried how honest I was going to make you, and I've got my first sort of hard hitting question in here, like you know, hard hitting journalism. Um, <laughs> did you get paid more for the sub eight project for the like the theatrics of that, or for coming second at St George? Huh, good question. Um, I am not good at remembering this stuff, and it's not a cop out. I promise. <laughs> Let me just have a think. Um, I made St. so George. much at both. I don't. I don't even remember. <laughs> No, it's not. That. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it feels like that. You you get paid well at these events. Um, I can't deny that. Uh, St George, I think that's public info. As in, um, uh, sub eight was more of a attendance. It was a participationary fee, so it wasn't about winning the sub eight uh, time. Um, whereas obviously St George was very much like position dependent and then team bonus dependent so i think yeah i i'm honestly i can't answer that finding a triathlon coach that's right for you can be really bloody hard it feels like just about every town or city in the world has a triathlon coach that coaches heaps of people but if you're like me you might find yourself asking well is this coach actually any good and some are but some just aren't it can be a bit of a lottery But there are a few proven world-class triathlon coaches who are just better than the average triathlon coach. And Dan Plews is not only that, he's one of the best triathlon coaches on the planet. There's some other people in that conversation like Olav Alexander Boo, Dan Larang, Bjorn Giesman, among others, but Dan is definitely in that conversation. And something Dan Plews has done that I personally love is create an online coaching community called Enduro IQ. It's a training platform that has hundreds of training plans written by Dan himself. It's not written by someone else. They're written by Dan himself. 
to suit each individual. For example, if you only have time for like six to eight hours of training because of work and family, there's programs for you. If you have time for 15 hours, there's plans for you. If you want to really take things to the next level and train 25 hours a week and try and become a pro, again, there's plans for you. The best thing about it is that there is literally so many training plans on there that no matter who you are or what you do or how much time you have or what your family or social or work life is, you'll find one that is literally exactly right for you. And it costs so much less than what getting coached by a much lower level coach would at only $25 per week. And Dan has given us a little discount code. So if you use the code HTT15 when you sign up, you'll get an additional 15% off that already really low price for the level of coaching you're going to get. Also, you get direct access to Dan Plews himself to ask any questions you want about training, nutrition, racing, etc. via like a weekly webinar and an online forum that's over on the Enduro IQ platform. So if you want to take your training to the next level and you're racing to the next level, and work with a world-class proven triathlon coach for a fraction of the price they would usually charge, head over to the Enduro IQ page. The link will be in the description or you can just Google Enduro IQ. Use the code HTT15 for that extra little discount and get stuck in. And then let's, let's start to like talk about the rest of your year. So what I'm fascinated about is what were your plans after this period of going from, with absolutely no offense meant, a bit of a no one in the sport to anyone who wasn't obsessed with the sport to being known by pretty much everyone who follows triathlon on Instagram and, you know, watches a few races and, and you know, is interested in Ironman and the PTO. What, what, what was changing for you? What were your plans going to be for the rest of the year? Mm. Um, obviously, win Kona. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think coming second at St. George gave me the, not that I needed it at the time, but the confidence to go into Kona and fight for the win. There was obviously a few races and the whole summer to sort of get through in the meantime. And I had more trouble recovering, I think, from the double whammy of St. George and Sub-8 than I realised um, we also moved house like twice in those six months. And so life was challenging that summer, but it was still very much like got three or four weeks in Texas may or may not do Dallas as, as training. And then Kona, bam, win Kona, secure your Ironman slot for the next, you know, like that's it. That was, it was sort of simple, very simple. Did you let the... Like, did your life change at all in that period or did things stay the same like internally with just people knew who you were more? I don't, I don't really know. I don't really notice. I don't, I don't think I, I gained more conf, like confidence in what I was doing as in credibility to being a professional athlete, I think from podium. Cause it was suddenly like, oh yeah, I was in a world champs race and I could have won that. That in one scenario in a scenario on that day I could have I obviously was like eight minutes behind Daniela so in no way I do I think that I could have won on the day if that makes sense but um no I I don't don't think so like there was definitely a lot more media like I said and uh, you know people absolutely loved the sub eight project I think there was more attention after the sub eight than there was after St George which was really interesting I didn't didn't really understand except sub eight really was really very cool 
so yeah no I guess I don't think my life really changed I just gave myself a bit more scope to invest in myself like take myself a bit more seriously I guess which probably well it might not have been a good thing <laughs> there's like this thing with like the power of marketing there a little bit isn't it where Iron Man didn't like Iron Man as a general rule don't like really promote the professional races that much so it's up to like other people to do it you know it's up to the individual athletes to post on their instagrams or podcasts or youtube um, creators to like push the narratives there because iron man won't really do it whereas for the sub seven sub eight it's internally driven so the people who are creating the project are the ones also marketing it which generates like hype and interest and so in a way, it's like surprising that you got more pop after it, but in a way, it's really to be expected as well because the the sub eight performance that you put in is is nowhere near to a purist, is nowhere near as impressive as as your St George race. Your St George race was one of the races of the year, you know, one of the top ten female um, triathlon performances in twenty twenty two without question. But of course, it, like the performance itself doesn't really matter if the the hype and the the build up and the excitement isn't there. So it's sort of like yeah, to a purist, it's like well that doesn't make sense. But when you think about it, it really does make sense. And it's a bit of a problem with triathlon at the moment, I think. And and you know we got the PTO doing it, but like I wish. I wish Ironman would generate a bit more hype around these races because you are right that that Daniela's performance at St George and and your performance at St George and even Anne's performance at St George they they do get forgotten about a little bit and probably don't quite at the time get the credit they deserve. I think every performance gets forgotten about as soon as a new one comes along. Um, that sounds a bit pessimistic, maybe, but like <laughs> you know, by next November we'll have forgotten about twenty twenty two Kona. No one will be talking about it. Like it, that's the sport. It has a small, short memory because it's entertaining. I agree that Ironman, I think they're actually really, it seems like they're investing more every year in their media strategy for not only pre-race stuff during race and then also after race. Like they they produced a really good documentary, didn't they, after St. George and Kona this year, I think, which I don't know where it got aired, but they obviously don't have the media budget that the PTO has or they don't allocate to the media budget that the PTO does. Um, but also just a tiny caveat, I did run 17 minutes quicker at sub eight than at St. St. George. So even though as a purist, you say the performance wasn't there, sub eight might not look like a great performance because there was only me and Nicola in it. But if you had put everyone else in that race, I think it would have highlighted how good that performance was. It wasn't just a media hype, which is maybe being, being a bit of a, you know, don't disobey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But it's just different, right? Like it's not the same thing where St. George, you're out there on a tough bike course, you know, time trialing, whereas, you know, the the sub eight project is a team time trial where you get to sit in. So the, the marathon's like <laughs> yeah, obviously always no. going to be much faster and the sub eight no. marathon course was much faster. I'm going to disagree with you. And I, I thought that, I thought, sweet, draft the swim, you know, I'll get five minutes off somebody else in the swim, as in, say five minutes with no effort and then the bike sweet I'll just sit in and it'll be great my heart rate was the same for St George bike as it was for sub eight bike I don't know if you've ever sat on a wheel in a team time trial before but trust me it's horrendous for four and a half hours going at I don't know 45k an hour 48k an hour it's really hard and not just constant like mentally but like physiology as well um 
I also think we got our team tactics wrong, so I didn't really get a great draft off Rufastel, but we would work on that in the future. <laughs> um, and so, no, I really disagree. Like my my run performance was not as in it was like 20 minutes shorter, sure, as in the bike or something. But that's what the men, the men always only ever bike for four hours. So it was it wasn't like a caveat marathon in my head, but I know other people have their own opinion. So what do you think made it so much? Like, do you just think that the performance at Sub 8 was that much better? Or do you think, because obviously the run course at St. George is a hell of a lot slower than that run course at Sub 8. And that yeah. explains a lot of the time difference. But you reflecting on it, do you think that the Sub 8 performance was better? Yeah, tough question. I think that they had their own um, elements of being better. My My run was better. I was way more controlled. I was way faster. Yes, the course was slightly different. I had access to whatever I wanted it, whenever I wanted it on the run. That's like saying some, yeah, I'll go off on a tangent. Um, <laughs> do it, do it, do it. No, I mean, it's like an amateur runner comparing their race to a professional race when the professionals get pro aid stations. It's not, you can't use that as a, as a caveat to performance, I don't think. So yeah, I don't know. They're too different to compare, but I don't think that they sit very clearly one on top of the other which I think most people think that they do in in my sort of my power numbers were down on the bike but my heart rate was exactly the same which I find fascinating and my heart rate was higher for the run because I was running faster as well as being able to put more effort in because I wasn't so destroyed um on the sub eight run plus it was it was hotter it was like I don't know 35 degrees or something um so complete complete differences ultimately any race where you have to go you have to surge like in a world champs or any professional triathlon i think makes a race harder and therefore skews a performance for most people the thing i'm fascinated by here because because that's really interesting to hear and I'm definitely one of those people who go, St. George is a much better performance. I still think it, but you've made me think about it and and hearing your take on it, like your takes where it ends, really, like that is the take. So I have to shift how I think about that. Like I, I don't have a choice anymore. Um, I can't tell you which one of your performances was better. You Like you telling me that, I, you, to, but outside looking in, I was like, well, St. George is way better. Um, so I guess, which one do you reflect on as being more proud of? I think it'll always be the race. It'll always be St. George because that's the sport. It's racing. But if you're what I, I guess I was talking about is more like the physiological yeah. performance. It's, it's not as easy as it sounded, but yeah, the emotional reward of St. George is it can't be trumped. I don't think anyone would look at that race and go, that looks easy though. Everyone was completely busted in the last sort of five to 10 K of the marathon. And like, I, I, I think even Christian really hurt himself in that race. And yeah. it's, it's sort of like the PTO races um, or like probably the first real case of it was, was clash Daytona. And it's this new element that's coming into triathlon of having to stay in a time trial position, pushing the same power for longer because the, like there's some courses that are coming ab about that are like less broken up and then running these courses that are um, very sort of the same, like there's not much mix up on them that you, and they're quite fast. 
they're, they're just different. But that is hard, isn't it? When you just like have to stay in a TT position for four hours or two hours, depending on which race it is, you can't really get out of that position much. And then the, the run, your heart rate's so high because yes, it's hot, but you're running fast because the courses are fast. So physiologically, your heart rate has to be higher. The, that new element that's coming to triathlon and triathlon courses is really hard. Definitely. And I think what's what's interesting to me and most triathletes, I guess, is that it's hard because we're in triathlon, I think, with the cycling element, we draw a lot of our lessons from time trialing. You know, this is the most aerodynamic position. We go to the velodrome, we go to wind tunnel, we put on our calf guards or whatever it is, like this position, one centimeter forward, you are half a watt quicker, whatever it is. Uh, less drag and then if you then translate that into sure you might be one watt quicker in relative terms over two hours but you physically can't run anymore because that one centimeter extended you to a point that overloaded your glutes and you're messed up so we have to it's hard because it's this constant challenge of learning the lessons that aren't already there for us to learn and I learned that the hard way this last summer I changed my position quite a lot um, in the middle of the year um, just because it, it on paper would be better. And I like before the Collins cup, I hadn't adapted the position and I visit, I honestly, I couldn't stand on one leg to put a shoe on. It was the worst I've ever felt off the bike because my bike position was on paper, the most aero. So I think, and Collins Cup is like, was a dead straight road in San Marin. So it's the same as you're saying, like Clash Daytona. So I think that's really interesting. And that's a constant developing area of like adaptability. And obviously we saw it with, I don't know, people whinging about bite, some of the female bite positions. It's like, yeah, but they can be in that position because that they can push 20 watts more than anybody else in the race and still run off it totally fine and podium. Um, so I think that's really interesting. The second bit you mentioned about the heat, that's a different level of interesting because it doesn't really fit with health and safety guidelines is what I find quite hard sometimes. Ironman, PTO races, we're not necessarily following what World Triathlon has dictated as what is safe. Um, and so... I think it's a bit risky personally. Yeah, the opposite. Like people may not realize this as fans of the sport and and it probably doesn't get talked about enough is that there's been this, whether it's even intentional or not, I don't know, but there's been this change and this push to making races hotter and picking race locations that are going to be hot um, at times of year where they're going to be hot. It's like, it's just been crazy the last two years. There's been so many boiling hot races and it doesn't get talked about at all it's like completely just like going going under the radar that yeah and it's tricky obviously to talk about it because it's not necessarily having a having a real dig at somebody but sometimes it does feel like as a professional athlete that we are pushed towards races that create drama for sure and heat creates drama there's no question and that's i've i actually do take a really probably a bit boring to some people like view of heat. Uh, my background is in obviously in the military. We've had some serious occasions in the military where um, soldiers have suffered from heat illnesses and deaths from training exercises. And so my father worked like on the development team for like lessons learned in some of these cases. And so I've heat illness has always been 
like part of, I've always known about it. And so I get I get really tetchy if there's races on and there's like, for example, some of those races that we've discussed, they didn't have appropriate ice, didn't have appropriate aid stations for water. There's no cover. There's no, there's sure there's ambulances, but that's after the problem. You know, it's reactive, not proactive. Um, what was really cool actually to be positive is in Dallas, they had ice halfway through the swim. So the water was so hot in world triathlon standards, I think that they might have been held to account for uh, halving the swim or even making that race a sprint distance, even though it was a middle distance, basically, which is interesting. And I don't, haven't discussed that offline. I don't know, don't know, don't quote me, but they had ice halfway through the swim. So even though you're overheating <laughs> in the first 20 minutes of a three, four hour race, they're still trying to do something about it. So that's really great. And the awareness there is coming from the athletes, from the staff, like that's really good. I, I didn't know. I don't even remember that. Was it, so it was out of the water. Yeah. You got, it was a two lap swim. You had to get I remember sort that. Of out, out through some steps. You could grab water and ice. And I saw someone else putting it down their suit. So obviously it doesn't last long, but there's a lot of psychology and cooling yourself down. So that, that was a good, I think that was a positive. Yeah. And so obviously you had, such a phenomenal first half of 2022 like it was crazy you were without doubt one of the top three you know best triathletes in the world for the first half of 2022 and everything was sort of just coming together for you and I think sub eight sort of summed that up where it was like oh Kat's like Kat, Kat's gone to the next level here people know who Kat is people care about Kat she's having these amazing performances she's yeah like you said you, you your head was just I'm gonna go and win Kona now and I actually I was like thinking about this after St. George. I go, well, I think Kona probably suits Kat more than more than most people. I think like she's a real chance here. I'm excited to watch this and and I was really excited for the for the battle with the girls because we we at at, at the point of St. George, even after St. George, we'd still never really had that battle with all of the best female long course triathletes in the world at the one race. And it turns out we got it at Kona basically, oh, but you were, the only, you were the only one who missed out. Uh, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about what happened after sub eight for that year and, and all the way up to missing, missing Kona. That feels like a dagger in my heart. Ah, sorry. <laughs> Everyone was there and then you weren't. Oh yeah. No. Um, yeah. Uh, so had, had some time off after sub eight um, as in sort of two weeks of just moving, not training, um, it's pretty standard for me, but I wanted to get back into it really like desperately because Kona was like, I was super focused at that point. Um, we also moved house. I also had a couple of social events. So I say desperate to get into it. I also had a couple of weddings that like family things and, um, like presenting, I presented at some really cool military events. Anyway, it was like desperate to train, but also life was very busy. So I didn't have great training in that, in that sort of couple of months. And then I had a little training camp in Girona, which was again, like fun thing to do. Also really hot, um, managed to get my head in the game to race again. I, I had a bit of a low point. Like I was struggling a little bit at, in the middle of the summer to, to want to race. I don't know. I can't really talk about it much now. Like I don't really know what was wrong, but I think I was just taking myself way too seriously. Um, and yeah, Collins Cup went really badly. Swansea, I raced 70.3, super average. Don't know how I scraped a win. I was obviously sort of fit enough, but I wasn't really in it mentally. I just sort of 
ran through to win because I needed to win. That's how it felt. And then it was all about Texas, like three, four weeks in Texas, head down, overly stressed about all of it. Hadn't really done a proper heat camp before, but I'd trained in the heat before. And so I felt like my sort of confidence was relatively high, but untested. And so going out to Texas is, it's pretty hot. Um, and it took me a while to sort of settle into it. And I, my friends who I was training with, like we've chatted about it so much afterwards, obviously like we actually all hung out at new years together. And one of them was like, yeah, so you were like stressy bitch cat. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh my goodness, why didn't you say anything at the time sort of thing? Like, and on reflection again, Texas, I was just in my own little world of stress. I wasn't enjoying training. Everything was going totally fine, which as you know, if you are, totally fine and consistent for six weeks you're going to be amazing like I I knew rationally that everything was fine but I was putting a lot of pressure on myself and not dealing with it so well um Mark was deployed in somewhere in Europe and I think I think just all of it as a whole I was finding overwhelming um can't again I can't really explain that it was a bit irrational um so yeah, that was my build up, and then bam, 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 no more build up. Talk to me about this crash because I like, I've been, I've I've watched a bit on it now, but I was trying <laughs> to not follow it too much because I wanted to like, I'm like, oh, Kat's going to come on the podcast at some point. I want to hear about this from her first. I sort of with the documentary that came out, I had to give that a watch, so I know more about it than I wish I knew for this conversation. But for those people who don't know, which is will be a lot of people listening to this, tell us about what happened. Um, so normal training ride, um, Texas, you don't have many options and there's this really nice road that you get to after about half an hour of average riding. And I'd ridden it nearly every day. It's just normal single lane, like average road. Um, I say single lane as in like one lane on either side of the road. Um, and I was just cycling along. I'd started a tempo rep. I think I was doing like three times six minutes or something like that. And, um, so time trial position, flat road, straight road. <laughs> I'm wearing red, bright red BMC kit. Like it's, there's no rational. The driver didn't see me and was coming from the opposite direction, turned across. And as he turned across the road, I, he basically, I think the Americans call it jackknifing. Um, so I just hit like head on onto his car as he was moving very slowly across my lane of traffic. Um, yeah. And then don't remember much. Just uh hit the hit the car, went over the car, and ultimately was then unconscious for a while. Uh lots of blood apparently. Fun, fun. Um maybe I'm not being very articulate in talking about it, but it's still it's still quite uh tricky to talk through. Um and ultimately as I hit the car, I don't really understand how I didn't just die. Um, like why my neck didn't just break in like, so instead of that happening, my, I got a lot of trauma to the face and then basically the, the sort of force then fractured the base of my skull as it then hit against my neck, which then didn't break. And then two vertebrae in my thoracic spine, my back, like compressed and fractured 
my sternum, like the breastbone fractured. And I now know I also broke a rib. Um, and as I then landed on the road, I now know I also fractured my like hip socket. Um, so yeah. And, um, what I didn't, and I still don't think I really have a brain injury, which it also doesn't really make any sense, but the damage to my brain was of a criteria that was worth diagnosing. So really interesting as a case study. Um, and I spent the last month, sort of like the first few months of the, that, um, recovery, like really delving into like study about it because obviously it's so physio by trade, um and like it's trauma is is really interesting like the physical elements of recovery and the uncertainty and the unknown and yeah it's amazing so learned a lot but been through a lot yeah that's um it's like one of those things right where i think you don't really you don't really think of training for triathlon as putting your life at risk the harsh reality is like every time you go out on a bike, you are quite literally facing the potential that you could not come home that day. And that's like, that's quite morbid. And, and it's like, none of us want to think that, but it, that's a reality, isn't it? And, and like the, the, like the, the injuries you had, how bad it was, like, there's just no doubt that that goes a little bit differently. And, and again, super morbid thing of me to say, but that you're just not with us today. Um, and there's like, that's like a really wild thing to get your head around. Um, so, like, I mean, firstly, it's it's great that you're fine. You know, it's like yeah. it's it's great that um, that that you are here and that that it didn't go like that. But you know, it can go it can go badly really quickly out there training. And uh, hard question to answer with with you not remembering a lot of it. And and it, again, maybe it being a bit too raw. But couldn't. Was there anything you could have done differently? Yeah, that that's honestly the best thing about the entire situation is that there's no regret. There's nothing I did wrong. There's like, there's not even a glimmer of, oh, should I have? Because if it crosses my mind that I was cycling too fast, like what? Like that's, if anyone was to ever think that, that's ridiculous. Like I was, well, like, that's not even a thing, if that makes sense, like, 40k an hour whatever it is like we race at that speed so to be doing that for five minutes is it's not a problem so no um and I guess that answers your question like yes it, it did flick in my mind that oh was I cycling too fast like no it's a dead flat road <laughs> like there's there you could see for miles there's nothing that I could have done differently and if you start doing the whole what ifs it's like oh what if I didn't stop for a coffee that day or what if I rode out one minute later uh, you know yeah it's like life you cannot i i haven't even passed that fleeting thought of oh what if no like you just can't and also when you get when you said about it's quite morbid to consider triathlon train you know like that is the potential i really i still don't see it life as as that i think it was a completely freak accident and these things just happen and it could happen walking out the door, crossing the road to go and get an ice cream or whatever it is, like life happens. Um, and I don't know where I've got that composure from, but I do. And it's great. <laughs> you have to have it though, don't you? Like you can't, you're a professional triathlete. You're 32 now. Like you've got, 
years ahead of you to be the best in the world. You can't be worrying about like going out on your, like a lot of people would be, but if you want to be the best in the world, you know, you're going to be training for 20 to 30 hours a week on your, on your bike, you know, in, in your sort of like eight day blocks of like three, four on one off three, four on one off. You're going to be doing yeah 20 to 30 hours of cycling. You can't be scared to go out there and ride or you just never do it. But surely you've had that. Like surely you've gone through that. There's moments now I still just sort of close my eyes momentarily being like, please don't hit me. Please don't hit me. Please don't hit me. Cool. So it's like, it's not, it's rational thought, but I think that's still something I'm dealing with. Yeah. And especially the first couple of rides and even in February, um, my husband, Mark witnessed me sort of shedding a couple of tears as the car got a little bit too close. Um, and I just lost it. I was like, I can't, I can't do it. I had to stop. I took about 30 seconds and I was fine again, turned around, chose a different road, but yeah. So there have definitely been moments where I can't control the, oh, are they going to just hit me? Sort of, is that going to happen again? Because it's happened. It's not irrational. No. It's literally rational. Um, so especially when cars are turning, but they're, they're, if they're waiting to turn, not a problem. If they're, tr- if they're moving forwards and indicating they're going to turn, that's where I'm a bit like, oh, just, okay, you're past it. <laughs> So yeah, it's not it's not as enjoyable as it used to be, but I I'm hoping that just settles, and I think it will just as time goes. So let's let's talk about the now, like the highs of the start of 2022, the the like absolute lows of the end of 2022. Um, what now? What's 2023 look like for you? How's your training been going? How how's it been going? Getting back into things. Where are you at mentally? What are your plans? What are your goals? Oh. That's, that question is way too open. Um, ultimately, I'm in a position now where I've exceeded any expectation of, I think, what would be, yeah, like perceived expectation, as in that's happened. I set myself like some Excel spreadsheet goals of like, by eight weeks, I want to be able to swim three kilometers. By 10 weeks, I want to swim three kilometers twice a week. By January, I want to do a 20 hour training camp and by February I want to do another one and then I'll be ready to mark ready to race like that was like gold standard cool so I've I've achieved that plus I'm achieving the the ridiculous goals that I had we had joked about between me Mark Bjorn of like you know I can push 220 watts now this is like November or December or something I don't know I can't remember what it was lol it will be 250 by january that sort of thing and now it's like oh cool okay well you can push 250 like you know this is it's better than it we had expected so enjoy that and i think ultimately the whole again like your question where i'm at now is like super super filled of just gratitude to be able to swim bike and run and i'm training like a professional and i've just entered or booked my flight this morning to oceanside um in eight days time. So um, Oceanside's very much of a sort of a bucket list. Like this is really cool. I'm only a flight away, two hours. Like why would I not race it? But I'm on Texas in, in a month's time is where I'm really focusing on sort of getting back to a standard where I can qualify for Kona and give myself the next six months to be better than I was in 2022. So Kat, you know how you, you spoke about, you didn't really have that belief, but but then you 
you went through these this phase of like mantras and, and positive self-talk to tell yourself, I can be the best. I can win a world championships. Has, has any of this changed that or are you still in that mindset where you can be, a, be the best and you can win world championships? Um, I think it's, it's sort of impossible of me to answer now having not raced because it's just like any preseason. I just don't know. And there's so many uncertainties that come with a, a big trauma, like as in trauma, trauma is like a dramatic word, but that's the describing word. Like there's so many other little things. It's easy to name the broken bones, but there's lots of other small little things that I don't know how they will impact my performance as an athlete. And until I get back racing, that's where I see my next step. So rather than thinking, oh yeah, sure, I'll be the best in the world. I'm going to win Kona this year. At the moment, my head is only at I'm going to race Ironman Texas and see how that goes because I have never been able to like even racing amateur before pro and even my first year as pro, like I can't make these big goals. I have to just make one step up. So the believing I can win a world champs era was just a step up from coming fourth at the 70.3 worlds, you know, fourth. Okay, cool. Well, you need a podium. You need to win. Whereas now it's very much like, okay, you're back to a sort of psychological, like, you are good enough. It's just, there's just a step before I can make that jump for myself. I want to say that I can in, in, in however many months I can completely disregard this accident on paper as a physio. I feel it's very hard to say that rationally, like how can it not impact my performance as an athlete? But ultimately I don't think I showed my potential in 2022 I think I still had many years to improve and whether I won't ever yeah it's too much to dwell on to think about whether I would not fulfill my potential now and ultimately this is my potential it's it's life it's the new normal so bit of a waffle but yeah I think I can win again have you noticed like coming back into things because you, you have used the word trauma a couple of times and it's I don't think it is dramatic. I think like any experience where it's like, oh, I could have died there. I think that's you have like a right to say, oh, that's a pretty traumatic experience. I can describe that as, as trauma. Um, that's pretty rational to me. Do you do you have any like ongoing lingering things that, that aren't even triathlon related, right? Like was there was there like really low periods mentally where where you struggled um where you like your sort of livelihoods taken away from you where you sort of like have these this big sort of um your traumatic life-threatening experience um do you triathlon aside just as cat the person do you have you had like tough times with it where you've been struggling how are you how are you going are you a hundred percent back to the like the the cat beforehand or or are you not i've um I've got my head in my hands and I'm like trying to maintain some composure in answering this question. <laughs> um, because without the drama, it's still really challenging to talk about the uh, like mental challenges that it brought, brought, brought me. Um, I haven't really delved into it because I haven't felt the need. And I'm hoping that that's a natural process that, I will at some point talk a bit more about it. But yeah, there, there were times where there was one specific time where I woke up and didn't feel the need 
didn't feel the desire to be awake. Um, and I haven't really talked about it, but it's it like emotionally, it draws me back to how grateful I am now to be where I am. So any of those negatives that keep cropping up or I had to go through just reminds me of like the power of now <laughs> and like what you can do if you choose to do it. And I, I then I get like, yeah, like uplifted by that. And I don't, and I'm like, cool. Don't have to, don't have to think, don't have to think about that again. Um, so yeah, me as a person. Yeah. And it's brought me a lot closer to some of my friends as well. Like I really relied on them emotionally. I could, I honestly don't think I could have got through it. And I would absolutely not be where I am today without Mark. His emotional support was unparalleled. Like I, I do not, he hasn't, he has never had any credit or will ever take any credit for that. But little moments where I'm just crying my eyes out because I can't get off the sofa as in I physically can't move or do anything for myself. Like I can't drive, I can't move, I can't, I can't, I can't do anything. I can hardly chew, you know, like stupid, incapacitated periods of sadness. And he's like tolerant, like accepting of that. And then the next moment it's like, right, let's be, you know, like the perfectly timed positivity in, in a lot of moments, like, yeah, lots of people to be very grateful for. And has it changed me generally as a person? Like, is it, I think, I don't know, probably, but sometimes I think it's flecting can be its own worst nightmare, <laughs> you know, be in the now. Yeah. Thanks for being so honest about that. It's like, it's a pretty tough thing to admit that um, you wake up and, and you don't want to, like, you just don't even want to be awake or alive or whatever it is. Um, that's, it's about as real as it gets. Yeah, now I'm regretting saying it. I, <laughs> it's, I it's, knew it. It's true, uh, though. Like, you felt that. Uh, and the, yeah. the crazy part is, Kat, like, you, you've gone through that, which is a really tough thing to go through. But I reckon you'd be – I think we'd all be surprised or shocked at, at how many people have those moments, maybe not because of a, a massive traumatic like thing that, like you had. Like, maybe it's not this one big thing that changes people's lives, but – think you'd be shocked at how many people who who on the outside appear to have normal lives um, wake up and think that you know more than once so I, I, I it's a tough thing to, to to talk about clearly and a tough thing to hear someone else say but that's that shit can have power right and and you're still here and you're positive and um and you've got like an amazing future ahead of you so there's like it's that's it's it, it's a it's a really raw tough thing but it's it's a fucking great thing too you know exactly yeah it and it really it like i think it just it brings it all back to the sort of like that's why we do triathlon like it, it is such a healthy such a health it can be such a healthy endeavor in terms of mental health and physical health lifestyle output gratitude there's so much there and i really love that I reckon this is a, a good spot to, to wrap it up on. And I knew this episode was going to be different where it wasn't just going to be 
uh, detailed training diet. Why don't you want to know about my run volume? I do. My, like, I do. Three times two minutes. I don't know. <laughs> that, that's where I was just getting is that I, I, f- I feel like we have to do another one uh, this year to go to move away from the the real deep sort of dark. Uh, I, I mean, your story's just bigger, right? Like it's just bigger in 2022. It wasn't it, it wasn't this thing where I'm like, I just want to get Kat on and, and talk about specific performances or how she trains, right? It was like, this is a, this is a human story of, um, of highs and lows. And, you know, that, 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 stuff, that stuff's bigger. And so uh, hearing about that fascinating, insightful, sad, uh, also, also there's a lot of positive to take out of that. Um, but we do need to, we need, we need to, to do another one at some point in this year, probably after you have a big race and, and inevitably do what you do in races and, and succeed and, and have like a great performance and, and go nitty gritty and, and, and delve into those, um, those training blocks on training camps you're talking about and, and how you prepared for those races. But yeah, I had to have you on and, and talk about the, the deeper shit today, which isn't necessarily what we always do here, but um, I'm very grateful for you for coming on and, and doing that with me, Kat. Oh, well, thank you for, Thank you for having me, and I really hope that it's not just a it's an it's an in, it's a useful insight in a way that is motivating rather than just like oh drama drama drama. I hope that this drama will be behind me this year. What what is the takeaway? What's the message you have for people? Oh, that's that suggests that I've prepped one. Um, I think passion and and gratitude would be my my sort of at the moment where my head's at and triathlon can give you that as long as you are balanced enough to see it i think we're drifting we can sometimes drift away from these like easy happy purposes of the sport because we're so obsessed with how we have to look or how we have to train or how we have to act because that's what social media says it's like no this is just this is an excellent lifestyle and we can be healthy humans physically and mentally with the sport. When you talk about gratitude, right. And and you've mentioned Mark, your partner a couple of times and, and literally just before said you couldn't have um, done it without him. Are you talking about gratitude for, for the people around you, for things you have in your life, all of it. And are you just talking like, are you just reflecting on that yourself or are you, are you, or are you like, reflecting and being grateful for things and then also telling people about it or you know like going and putting it out there in the world how does that how does gratitude work for you i think when i mention it it's more about my attitude and outlook as in the idea that like i am so thankful that i can talk i can have a conversation with you and mm. feel confident as in that's the level of my, I was worried about my, my brain. Like I'm so grateful that I can physically run like, let alone like walking great, but running. uh, Yeah. That's a gift in my life. Grateful that I have people around me who believe in me, who gave me the confidence to believe in myself. Like that's what I mean. I think by, by gratitude, being able to see those things as positives is, is like, I guess it's a mindset but it's not an active choice I'm making. It's just, it, I'm just filled with it at the moment. Yeah. That's uh yeah, that's insightful. And I mean, it, it's hard to see like you're not taking that mindset and, and it leading to more 
you know, like more success because you're just grateful for everything really. So like, you know, the little things that, that used to seem hard, maybe they don't seem as hard anymore. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm just interested in six months time, in 12 months time to follow up on this and see where you're at and, and see whether ultimately there were a lot of positives to come out f- f- like from it and, and in, you know, this mindset you have. And yeah, I, I we're, we're getting into the realm of fortune telling here, but I'm, um, I'm really, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm really interested to see where it goes and, and where you end Me up too. And, then, and then talk about it. Cause uh, yeah, that will be sort of like the, uh, we're halfway through the story. You know what I mean? Like, we're halfway yeah. through the seventh Harry Potter book and we've still got the last half left, which is the best half, Cat, if you haven't read it. So, um, oh, I've read it many times. Yeah. Don't worry. I'm a Harry Potter fan. But yeah, me too. I'm really excited. And I, and I want, there are obviously days in training where I'm not excited. It's like really hard work and I'm really tired, but I'm really excited about what I can do because it feels like a new platform. Awesome. Well, let's wrap it up there. I've already taken up way too much of your time. Uh, can't wait to follow along. I, I suggest everyone else jumps over and follows Kat on Instagram and follows her story this year because um, I think it's going to be one of the stories of the year and I'm going to be talking about it a lot um, when it comes to, to racing throughout the year and it's it's something I'm going to be co- like following uh, and paying a lot of attention to and, and yeah, you'll, you'll probably get sick of me talking about every, every race Cat does this year because it's definitely, I, like I think it's, it's um, if there was a top 10 stories of the year, you know, Jan coming back and his battle with the Norwegians is, is probably number one, but Cat Matthews' return to the sport is in that top 10 if you were to do an old school newspaper article about it. So let's all follow along and, and get around Cat this year and, and see what she can do. So, yep, thanks for your time, Cat. Really appreciate it. That's really kind of you, Jack. Thank you. Have a good day. See you, Cat. Bye. Americans, Pillar Performance is officially available to you today. Stop what you're doing right now and go and get yourself some Pillar Performance Triple Magnesium Powder. It seriously changes your sleep and training in a way you've heard me talk about a million times already. So don't wait any longer than you've already had to. Go and get yourself some right now. And for everyone else in the world who already uses Pillar Performance and uses the HTT20 discount code for 20% off, then just a reminder about the update that I now have a landing page over at the Pillar online shop where you can go to it and the discounts will be automatically put on your products during checkout without you having to enter a code. You can find that at pillarperformance.shop slash HTT. That's pillarperformance.shop slash HTT. So grab your pillar from there from now on. The link for it is still in the description and the HTT20 discount code still works if you do want to do that um, and you don't like change, but this just does make things a bit easier for you. It also has some great little extra info about the products you might want, so go and check it out. 